Welcome to the fourth episode of Sequelizers, the show all about fixing bad sequels to good movies. If there's a good movie that was followed by a terrible sequel, we're going to try and fix it. I'm your host, Jack Chambers, and joining me are the two teams of Sequelizers. Our first team is comprised of Stuart Ashen. Hello. And Alec Plowman. Howdy. And our second team, Matthew Stogden. Mm. And Tom Martin. Hello there. So, in episode four, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. We haven't tackled horror yet, although you could argue some of the previous films have been pretty horrendous. This is easily the worst film we're going to try and fix. Some consider it one of the worst films ever made. We're going to try and fix Exorcist 2, colon, The Heretic. And it is... To give context, the first three episodes we've done all are around a 5.5, 5.7 average on IMDb. Just for... For context, this is a three point seven on the shitter scale. <laughs> on the shitter scale, exactly. So, the others have been oh. disappointing sequels. This is truly incompetent. I honestly, yeah. I honestly just going to hold my hands up here and just say I couldn't get through it. Mm. Like, just I, I think that's entirely fair. couldn't watch it. Mm. Yeah, there were basically riots when they released this film. Were, Most when it was cinema. Yeah, a very famous moment where someone in the audience just stood up and said, "The guys who made this piece of shit are in this room." <laughs> 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 Was like just hunting people down. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 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 Phenomenon of a film mm-hmm. at the time, mm-hmm. in terms of the cultural impact and everything else. And again, as we talked about with Jaws two, this is an era where following up a huge movie with a huge sequel wasn't really a thing that was done. And interestingly, the producers of Exorcist two originally planned for it to be a low budget oh, yeah, three million dollar movie, just using B roll yeah. from the first one. <laughs> um, but I, I think a lot of it comes down to Godfather Part two. Um, which uh, everyone, if anyone says, you know, is there a sequel better than the original? People say no, and I still maintain Godfather Part One is better than Two, but that's not good. And Last Strikes Back, <clears throat> just saying. Yeah, but the Godfather Part Two was seventies as well, and it was the whole like, oh my god, Part Two's can be spectacular, and they sort of lean into it with, you know, oh this is a good film, we can make something. De-. And mm. they say originally the yeah. idea being just a schlocky, let's punch out something really cheap and nasty. Mm. And they said no, let's do, let's do something here, and what they did was. Wow. (laughs) What I think is really interesting is that a lot of the sequels that we have critiqued so far, we have critiqued for doing a lot of the same things again, but with diminishing impact. Exorcist Part 2 is a film that does none of the same things again, in that it almost just, literally none. Yeah, yeah. yeah. like there's a priest in it. That's something. Yeah, um, <laughs> but it is it is an exorcist film without any exorcisms as well. There is no like the way that the possession works. With, well, I don't think there really is any possession. Uh, no, well, there really is in, in the African stuff. I guess, the flashback to Lamont, yeah. but it's such a distance from what we've seen in the first film. It's like someone described the film to someone else and said, oh, that's what Possession is, um, and then just ran with something entirely different. Yeah. Um, and so there's no um, no visual connection between the two of them. Because, again, again, the way... It's, it was such a horrific... Well, well, okay, initially, boring story time. John Borman was offered to direct the original and said, oh, I couldn't possibly do that. It's too disgusting, too dark. And went on to make Zardos. 
<laughs> for God's sake. Um, and Stanley Kubrick was approached. He said, only if I get to produce it and make something much like The Shining that's nothing like the source material. Um, but what, you know, and then, and then when eventually John Bourne was approached to do the sequel, um, again, Kubrick did come to him at one point and said, um, you need to make this bigger and gorier and darker. People are going to hate it. And he said, no, 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 no. I don't want to just torture a girl. I've got kids. I was like, well, that's kind of what everyone sort of wants in a sort of horrifying way, especially from this kind of story. Mm. So, and the only person that I mentioned earlier before we started rolling, um, uh, Martin Scorsese kind of likes the film. He's the only person that does. <laughs> there are a couple of people, though. Yeah. I have this reading around there. There are a couple of people who... They said there's merit in the idea of good versus evil and yeah. things. And I think while there could be some interesting elements, ultimately, just really poor execution. Really poor writing. Well, and also just some things that maybe at the time flew, but watching it now, you mm. just are oh, like what yeah. the... So there is a plot point about, and I don't know how you'd even describe it, but there is a device that they have oh, the that allows characters to merge... <laughs> no, synchronise them. We need a sequel. We need a device. Um, there is a device they have that allows characters to merge minds. And yes. Regan, Linda Blair, who reprises the role in this film, at one point merges minds with um, uh, Richard uh, Richard Burton. Yes, yeah. which is Father Lamont. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then they have like a shared consciousness throughout the film. The, the telepathic link, that's right. Yeah, established by this device that mm-hmm. is like a straight up medical thing that they use in their. <laughs> future psychotherapy yeah. lab and, and Louise to. Fletcher's character is very much like oh what are she's really blase about everything she's like we've discovered a way to probe not only probe people's uh, memories and thoughts but also to visually see them it's like yeah. wow that is like inception level ridiculous material and it is literally two lights on a silver box and some head <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing it and so... um and the way that that's just Set up as you said as such a blase thing. Yeah. So, oh yeah, that's just the thing we can do now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. yeah. she at one point, because they, they do push this whole idea that the reason that, that Reagan was targeted is because because she's sort of a very you know uh, yin yang kind of thing. She's a very uh, uh, good, for lack of a better word, character. A uh, very not holy, but you know, what I mean, that's sort of imbued with a, a goodness, a sense of innocence, and all that stuff. Not so much that she's also some sort of weird spiritual yeah. healer, and she heals an autistic girl. Which is fine, but then they just, at one point, Luz Fletcher's character just sort of says, Please don't interfere with my patients. What, by curing them? <laughs> it's, is it what? It's just meddling with the mind is a really dark thing. What, like you? I like your box. I also like um, the Nurse Ratched. Uh, oh, just, yeah. Just yeah. is like, um, yeah, you know what? It's fine. You just, <laughs> priest, you like. Don't don't be here, priest, because trauma and everything. Yeah. Oh, but actually, it's all right. You know what? Come in. Just talk to yeah. her. And, you know what? You do the mind melt thing. That'll probably be fine. Sure, that'll this fix girl all the yeah. problems. Convinced has been psychologically scarred by this exorcism yeah. that she was forced to undergo when she had some yeah. psychological problem. It just there's an amazing scene where the the, the, the mind meld. It's just called mind meld. The mind melding with um, Louis Bunch's character. No. <laughs> For those who couldn't see, Jack tried to get up in my business. Um, that's the traditional Star Trek yep. um, so Louis Fletcher's going into uh, Linda Blair's character's mind and, they, and then she sees such a horrific imagery that she starts to um, pass out and go to this sort of catatonic state at which point Richard Burton says give it to me I'll put it on it's like, you have no idea what you're doing <laughs> and yet masters it and performs a sort of exorcism 
with technology. And yeah. it, it, she's, they're both trying to... I know they're trying to go for a heart, but it basically it's like a booby groping stuff. It's really <laughs> weird. Uh, the whole film's really weird. She also point out that um, it's clearly not Linda Blair in the makeup as oh, well. Oh, no, yeah, uh, that bit. Because she... And they then said, answered the question that no one had answered, and saying, hey, that girl who was like, you know, hideously, you know, scarred up and masturbating with a crucifix a lot more, stabbing herself with it. What if she was sexy? Which is how the film basically ends. Yeah. With this, like, I don't want her, let's get her out of the makeup as quickly as possible, because obviously, um, sorry, the, the additional body double, as it were, because it's not convincing enough. It's not too bad, but it's obviously not the thing. So let's say, let's just have a, a physical body double of Linda Blair out of nothing, basically, I propose. It's just, it's just sort of this, this manifestation and lots of locusts. And Garth Vader. A lot of locusts. Yeah. 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 I do love the uh, IMDb synopsis, which actually ends with um, with uh, his investigation takes him to Africa, where he locates another recipient of Mary's exercising and learns something fascinating and terrible about locusts. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's, it's <laughs> James Earl Jones dresses up like one. <laughs> it is really weird. And he doesn't actually learn anything no. about locusts. No. He doesn't learn anything about anything. Well, he learns that grasshoppers turn into locusts. Um, he he learns that's that's that, he learns <laughs> to look that up pretty quickly if he put his mind to it. He learns that uh, James Earl Jones is genetically engineering some kind of yeah. female oh, savior locust. Because yeah. the thing with this film is not just the bizarreness of the plot, but the stiltedness of the dialogue and everything mm-hmm. else. There's an amazing scene where um, psychiatrist lady is talking to Richard Burton yep. about just general shit for some reason they're just having a conversation mm-hmm. and she says to him don't you ever find it lonely being a oh, priest yeah. don't you think you need a woman and he just goes yes <laughs> <laughs> it, the shot holds on him for about seven yeah. seconds you waiting for yeah. something him to say something else yeah. just holds on him and then Linda Blair walks in and the conversation changes and you move on you never return it's to awkward. where would this have gone to be fair though Richard Burns' performance is so um just so very alien. So very drunk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, I, I think he actually said in a later interview that he's like, I was going through a divorce with, with Elizabeth Taylor. I was like, I needed the money. Um, but he, there's a fire that through psychic links he finds <laughs> oh, and he puts it out or at least tries to put it out with some wooden crutches <laughs> and the fire goes everywhere and Nurse Ratchet looks at him with his like, um, fire extinguisher like, the fuck are you doing? <laughs> The, the whole way that sequence plays out is oh, amazing. So basically, Pazuzu the demon starts a fire and he sees the fire is happening. They go down to the basement and there is a lightly smouldering box. <laughs> uh, <laughs> fucking Nurse yeah. Ratchet's response is to be like, I'd better call the fire brigade. Yeah. She goes and does that while on the phone, Richard Burton's like, I will get the crutches out. Wooden crutches will stop. I've got to get this fire everywhere. <laughs> she gets off the phone and is like, okay, but bye then. And then goes and picks up a fire extinguisher. Because yeah. clearly, in speaking to the fire department, they were like, smoke in a box. Do you have a fire extinguisher? She was like, yes. Yeah. And they were like, why the fuck are you calling yeah. us? Comes back and Richard Burton has managed to just set the entire room on fire. <laughs> Everything is burning. But it's, it's alright because the, the the larger angle of the thing is that Reagan already drew it and knew it was coming and saying, what the fuck? It's um, so terrible. There is also a moment that I loved in terms of Richard Burton and Bizarreness because I'm... Uh, Richard Burton is a great actor. Mm. Wonderful actor and 
you know, as a as a Welshman in particular, I feel like I have to yeah. I have to defend Richard Burton. But this was not a great period in no. in Richard Burton's career. <laughs> That's and, a fine um, way of putting it. And um, some of his performance stuff is just bizarre. There is a moment where he just stares straight at the camera, <laughs> and there is no explanation given. But it's like halfway through the scene, it's Richard Burton has it's just basically a moment from The Office where he just <laughs> yeah. makes a dead eye contact. Richard Burton has decided to stare into your soul, and he does not like what he sees. It's like. Music from Curb Your Enthusiasm, please. You've got a renowned drunk, or at least alcoholic, uh, alcohol aficionado, Richard Burton, (laughs) and you've got Linda Blair, who unironically just said, hey, I was only ten minutes late this morning, isn't that great? Although I would point out just about Linda Blair being crazy. Um, Nothing, I mean, it's shot like that, for example. Yeah, an actor gets bored, an actor's tired, doesn't care about the job, glares on the screen. Why Borman included it, God knows. Why Borman thought, you know what we need right now? We need Linda Blair talk to the edge of this skyscraper and sort of just look over the edge while the wind blows and ravages her. And then you think, realise that, oh my God, this is not a, a special effect shot. There are no wires. There's no net. If she falls, she dies. There is no way to <laughs> catch her whatsoever. It's but astoundingly amazing as a shot. They couldn't get the stunt double in either. So no. it is actually, the stunt double wasn't available on the day. Yeah. So you just went, <laughs> Linda, would you mind? Yeah. And like, what, like, there's a shot where it's her feet on yeah. the ledge and it's actually it's a, Linda Blair. Yeah. It's a full it's drop. It's crazy. Yeah. And, and the thing is, the wind blows like crazy but there's, a, there's a, like a couple of gulls or what the hell ever and then the wind obviously is blowing around quite a lot she's trying to stabilise she's obviously extremely high up so it's, it, that's probably the most terrifying moment of the film for me realising as filmmaker thinking oh my god that's not a good idea there's also the weird kind of um, slight as you mentioned the sexualization of yeah. Linda Blair at the end when she's like 18 when she makes a yeah. movie and it's like here's the 12 year old girl you remember from the last film well, Richard Burton's going to have a go yeah, um, <laughs> but also just he kind of does. He, jumps, he does. He does straight on. It's like pretty much yeah. Groping away, straight up, literally rips her fucking heart yeah, out. Yeah, punches and then, into her. What I think is amazing is tears it out and then just casually throws it over <laughs> his shoulder. Yeah. It's like a sweet contrast. Sort of, uh, cartoon. Uh, I'm going through a, a very small case that happens to have a loads of crazy. Like, What's this? Oh, my heart and throws it over his shoulder. <laughs> oh, that was the thing. Yeah. Regan, it's fine. I've got more yeah. things to tear out. Ah! <laughs> it looks straight the sheets. Straight, straight into the camera. Where's my booze? Yeah. <laughs> Everywhere. Richard. <laughs> you smell sauce, darling. <laughs> I'll drink your blood. It's... I'd like to take issue with the subtitle of The Heretic mm. as well, because it makes you think the film's going to be about a fucking heretic. Yeah. But I had actually missed what that reference was until Alec pointed it out. I only found this out reading up on it. The Heretic is meant to be Father Merrin mm. from the original Exorcist. <laughs> yeah. Right. And the Catholic Church yeah. is investigating him for heresy yeah. for being good at exorcisms. Because <laughs> <laughs> that is... Um, Bloody typical. Is... Investigated for being a heretic for being good at his job. job. Yeah. 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 It's... Oh. Dragon Britain! It yeah. should have been called The Exorcist Does his job. <laughs> Exercises. How desperate is Richard Burton? <laughs> Answer I, The Exorcist He was, he was, he was, he was in a bad place. I'm defending Burton. Yeah, let's, 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 let's just yeah. gang up on Elizabeth Taylor. So it was her fault. Purple-eyed lady. Well... Purple-eyed lady. Exorcist 2, Colonel Purple-eyed lady. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds, Sounds like, like a, a frog rock album. It does, yeah. yeah. 
Let's do the prog rock albums. Um, we need some team names from you guys. Oh, well, oh. <laughs> don't sound too excited. Oh, no, no, no. Um, we're, we're, we're all now. We, we, we're, we're four shows in. We know how this goes now. Yeah, goes. Yeah. We're, we're okay. Yeah. We're, okay. We're, not, we're not like Batman Forever moment where we're like, oh shit, shit what, what do we, we do? do? Yeah, we're, we're on it. We're on it. Okay, stop, oh, we're going stop Dylan Martin. Oh, okay. Uh, Tom, would you like to this? Yeah, we're going to go with uh, Street Sharks from Hell. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to get old eventually, but not this week. No, it's not. Yeah. No, it's not yet. Much like all sequels, you can bleed them dry forever. <laughs> <laughs> right. And uh, Ashen and Plowman. Uh, I think we're going to go with Your Mother Knit Socks in Hell. <laughs> ah, very good. Well done. I quite liked Look Who's Pazuzu Now. <laughs> <laughs> very good. <laughs> Your mother knit socks in hell. Why don't we kick off with you guys? All right. Certainly. So, our film is called Pazuzu, The Exorcist Part 2. Oh, that's good. Yes. Nice. We nice. should like point out Pazuzu is the name of the demon. Not just Exorcist. It's not just a funny it's not just word we made up. <laughs> Pazuzu. Um, Pazuzu, Exorcist School. <laughs> um, ours is made in 1989. Oh, okay. Interesting. Good year. Because Good year. you've got to leave a bit of distance, I think, because the Exorcist was such a huge cultural phenomenon. You are just going to disappoint if you come in later with horse shit like they actually did. Well, actually, I'm going to give you a little bit of the thought process here. So I was trying to think of some way of keeping, like, Pazuzu as this mysterious, satanic thing. Oh, what's going on? You're not quite sure he's doing this. How are you going to keep it fresh and keep it different? I thought, ah. Oh. Well, there's a lot of dead priests at the end of the first film. Police would probably be looking into that, as they mm. are wont to do. And so I think some sort of police procedural, maybe, where things get increasingly strange. I don't know. Then I thought, what about some kind of... They're making a documentary, and it ends up like the very first found footage mockumentary thing. I don't know they're difficult to do properly. So we gave up on both of those and went utterly fucking mental. <laughs> <laughs> Right. So, ladies and so gentlemen, gentlemen yeah. we get to you. The year is 1989. Pazuzu, The Exorcist Part 2, is directed by John Carpenter. Oh, okay, okay. Who like will also be doing the music. Yeah, a version of... of um, Tubular Bells. He's going to have to sing the title as well. Pazuzu, get out of the body, Pazuzu. That's basically repossessed Leslie Nielsen, isn't it? Oh, dear. Regan McNeil will be played by John Cuff. No, by <laughs> Richard Burton. <laughs> by... Was he dead by that stage? Yes, he was. Yeah. <laughs> Richard Burton's yeah. <laughs> No, Linda Blair will be returning as Regan McNeil, or possibly Reagan McNeil. They seem to pronounce the names both names. Yeah, they do swap in, in the second. Yeah. Father Lamont does appear, mm. although he's a slightly different person, played by Lance Henriksen. Mm. Oh, cool. New character of Father Walsh is played by Stephen Dorff. Mm. And a new character of Peter, a young lad, is played by Joey Kramer. Not the one from Aerosmith. <laughs> <laughs> Joey Kramer was the boy from Flight of the Navigator. Oh, right. Oh, right. yeah, yeah. The one that's now been like arrested. Did yes. For... See, if Arnold only Robert. he'd oh, been the sequel to The Exorcist right, in 1989, right. he'd be fine. Man. How old was Dorff at this point? Roughly young man. Oh, I can't remember. So he must have been yeah, very young. Yeah. He's, he, yeah, Dorf is, is fairly yeah, yeah, yeah. like cool. Yeah, yeah. He's a good age. <laughs> <laughs> That's the uh, subtitle. <laughs> like, like a fine wine. <laughs> yeah. He's aged very well. A solid vintage. <laughs> <laughs> right. <clears throat> Elevator pitch. 
12 years after The Exorcist, Regan McNeil must face off against the demon that once possessed her, but this time it's not just her who's at stake. Mm. Very short now. The themes we'll be covering are evidence-based healing versus blind belief, and there is no such thing as absolute good or evil. Mm. Interesting. 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 So, over to Street Sharks from Hell. So, our uh, our elevator pitch is for what we're calling The Exorcist 2, Diary of the Demon. And uh, it is going to be released in 1999. Interesting. Interesting. You both yeah. skipped past the, the 77 release there. Yeah. Okay. So, the elevator pitch is, following the death of Father Dyer, ex-military chaplain Father Thomas Novak uncovers documents written by Pazuzu listing other key possessions throughout history. Doubting their authenticity, Novak travels to the Vatican and uncovers a sinister plot. We've got a bit Da Vinci code! Mm-hmm. Very different. The thing about the artifact, that, that's from one of the films, isn't it? Where, like, Pazuzu has different items, am I... Uh, is that four? Yeah. I don't know. I don't think it is. I think so. I've seen other horror films, but I don't think that one. But <clears throat> So, mm. I'll, let, I'll um, let my fellow sharks yes. take over. And, uh... So, 1999, uh, we thought we'd need a, a director who uh, is very capable at this point, uh, a very broad scope and scale. You say Joel Schumacher. <laughs> <laughs> it's not let Schumacher. me get there. He's sold. He's sold. <laughs> Fresh off his success on Robocop 2. (laughs) (laughs) Joel. No, Um, no, no. Uh, we've gone for, um, at this point, he would have directed Alien 3, 7 and the game, but about to do Fight Club with David Fincher. Oh, one of my faves. What we have in mind is very big, and we think there'll be a director who needs to be able to really produce something really over the top. Because at this point, this point is 26 years after the original. So you want to be coming back to something that audiences probably don't have an actual connection to or have an idea of what the film was about. But we also want Fincher, because Fincher does scale really well, yeah. but in a way that is not how other Hollywood directors do scale. He Especially uh, on time. No, at the time. I mean, we're, we're very much pulling on the kind of, the, the sort of seven and the game in terms of, and, and obviously, arguably, he would would have done, he would have been at the point in 1999 where he'd done Fight Club, which mm. just, he. I mean, he's, I'm a massive Fincher fanboy, so I'm just going to be like, he's amazing. But he really does do scale, but with a sense of realism, a sense of substance, and just just quality, which I think you know most directors... Yeah, we've come across nice in that film. Okay, we've got a lot to cover here, so bear with us. Um, returning cast would be William O'Malley as Father Dyer, uh, Mercedes, Mercedes. Mercedes McCambridge as the voice of Pazuzu, uh, Max von Sydow as the voice of Father Merrin, New cast members. Oh, here we go. Father Thomas Novak will be uh, Edward Norton. At this point, he's done People vs. Larry from American History X. He hasn't done, obviously, Fight Club and Red Dragon and things like that, but we think he'd be really prepared to go for. Cardinal Brooks is being played by an actor who's headed Gods and Monsters and apt pupil and would then later to go on to be X-Men and Lord of the Rings in the form of Ian McKellen. We've also got the role of Father Ricardo, who is a Vatican archivist played by Frank Nero. Sorry, Franco Nero. Uh, Franco Nero, um, people can know from one of two things. One, he's the original Django. And two, he was Esperanza in Die Hard 2. And this one was that. Thomas Kretschmann um, from Stalingrad and later The Piano and Downfall and tons of other things will be playing the role of Hugo Tiller. Uh, Nicoletta Brasci will be playing Meria, who was in La Vita e Bella. And Pinocchio, unfortunately. She's um, Roberto Benigni's wife and does a lot of films with him. We've got actually something that 
comes from the Exorcist prequels that came out, uh, we are actually keeping Stellan Skarsgård as the young Father Merrin. At this point, he's already done Good Will Hunting and Ronin, so he's not hit his full stride as main pull-the-focus thing. But again, Fincher has a tendency to cast really big actors and very much unknown actors in small roles mm-hmm. and doing really well. Definitely. DOP has to be Jeff, Jeff Cronenworth. Definitely has to be Jeff Cronenworth. Obviously, him and Fincher's uh, sort of collaboration... Um, Sort of really kind of uh, sort of kicked off. We, we were going to go with, and I forget the guy's name, and that's really bad because it's annoying. I think the chap that uh, shot Seven, but obviously Fight Club, I believe, was the first film that uh, Cronenworth and Finch worked together mm. on. Obviously, their yeah. relationship has continued throughout. Um, he also did one hour photo as well. He, he did also do one hour photo. <clears throat> but obviously, their relationship has gone on throughout social network, Gone Girl, um, most of Finch's sort of recent work, and they just work incredibly well together, mm. and his visuals. Oh, fantastic. Um, we're bringing a very different eeriness to what we're... Oh, God, about. yeah, yeah. I mean, so you look at Fight Club, some of the, you know, the eeriness of that film is... is it's his, very unsettling. His, yeah, in yeah. visuals. Last thing we put out there is uh, the composer. We're going for John Debney. Uh, this is a really on-the-nose sort of thing. We're going to be... We're not even, like, going for a subtle score here. Um, John, Je- John Debney um, did... I know what he did last summer. He did End of Days with Arnold Schwarzenegger mm. and The Passion of the Christ. So he's going proper big... Yeah. At the end Holy of the day, it's a little bit of a clue as to our direction. So, uh, Maybe. Arnie's going to turn up. Yeah. <laughs> Sold. Um, <laughs> I should mention that we, um, uh, as far as crew, something mm. that we uh, forgot to mention is visual effects in our film Ooh. are done by Tom Savini. Oh, yeah, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thing. Your mother knits socks in hell, won't we start off with you guys? <laughs> Just sounds like you're Right, Pazuzu, The Exorcist, Part 2, 1989, here we go. Father Lamont, a pupil of the late Father Merrin, and a junior priest called Father Walsh, have journeyed to Africa at the behest of the church. He is investigating an incident that occurred in a remote African village. The village is of immense significance as it was home to Kokumo, a boy from whom Father Merrin once exorcised the demon Pazuzu, which is an event referred to in the original Exorcist and is heavily featured in Exorcist 2 Heretic. The village has been razed to the ground. The smell of death and charred flesh hangs in the air. Lamont and Walsh meet with the village's priest, one of the few survivors of the apparent massacre. He explains that Kokumo became a doctor, university educated, who brought medicinal practices to the village to treat its people for tuberculosis and malaria. Pazuzu, who possessed Kokumo in his youth, has returned to seek his revenge. Pazuzu possessed Kokumo's patients with a ferocity that the priest had never before seen. He and Kokumo tried to exorcise them, but the demon's hold on his victims was too powerful. In an act of desperation and fearing the spread of Pazuzu's reach, the priest burned the village to the ground, killing all those in Kokumo's care. After telling his story, the priest brings Lamont to Kokumo. Catatonic and rolling on the floor, he is utterly broken by the horror of the incident. He repeats a phrase over and over in a dialect unrecognisable to both fathers. Lamont asks the priest what Kakumo is saying, and the response is, The power of Christ compels you. Now aged 33, Regan McNeil is a psychiatrist working at a mental institution in upstate New York. Now a staunch atheist, she has come to believe that the incident of the original Exorcist film was due to extreme psychosis, rather than demonic possession. Furthermore, she has come to resent the church, believing that their handling of the situation was backwards and misguided, and that Father Karras was himself mentally unstable, which resulted in his suicide. She only has flashes of recollection of the 1977 incident, something that she accounts to post-traumatic stress disorder. Yet, unbeknownst to her family and colleagues, 
Those flashes have become more pronounced and more intense in recent times. They also sometimes contain images that don't seem to come from her own life. It was the trauma of her youth that ultimately led her to the mental health profession, and she is currently pioneering new advances in children's mental health care. There are four children presently under her care at the New York Institute. Lamont and Walsh journey to the mental health facility. They need to see Regan to tell her about the attack in Africa and warn her that she is in danger. But upon their arrival, Regan is hostile towards them and dismissive of their fears. She is a woman of science, not of God. Lamont asks her if she has been experiencing flashbacks to the incident recently, believing these herald Pazuzu's imminent return. Regan is angered by this and demands that they leave. They do so, but Lamont insists on leaving a contact number with Regan. A new child, Peter, is brought under Regan's care at the facility, one who is believed to be suffering from the same condition that Regan did as a child. Like Regan, the characteristics of his ailment seem to resemble that of demonic possession. Following her encounter with Lamont, Regan is even more determined to treat the child, not just to cure him, but also to prove to Lamont that his stories about Pazuzu are false. Lamont and Walsh return to the Catholic Order to report their findings and their stories about Regan. Lamont emphasises a need for action and his fears about the imminent coming of Pazuzu. Sensing Lamont's urgency, the Cardinals implore him to return to Regan and watch over her while sending Walsh to the archives in the Vatican to find out as much information about Pazuzu as possible so they might defeat him. Back at the hospital, Regan still treats Peter, but his condition is intensifying. Furthermore, strange things are increasingly occurring in the hospital. A doctor apparently commits suicide after overdosing on prescription medication, his suicide note a mess of satanic scrawlings about the futility of healing. Ectoplasmic matter begins dripping from the walls. Regan's other patients start to exhibit similar symptoms to Peter. In one session with Peter, he goes full-on demonic. Believing this to be Dissociative Identity Disorder, or Multiple Personality Disorders, as we'd call it in the 80s, brought on by his psychosis, Regan asks who she is talking to. He responds with Captain Howdy, and Regan has a full-on seizure flashback to her own possession and to more unrelated images that of a terrifying and brutal act in a temple long ago in a faraway place. Regan's staunch atheism begins to falter, though she is certainly not a convert at this stage. She calls Lamont and tells him to come to the facility. As per the first film, she wonders if she can stage an exorcism as part of Peter's treatment to effectively shock him out of his psychosis. Before Lamont leaves, he receives a call from Walsh, who has returned from the Vatican and uncovered what he believes is significant information about Pazuzu and his intentions. He tells Walsh to meet him at the Institute. Lamont arrives and is let in by Regan, but the shit hits the fan upon his arrival. Pazuzu was returned, having taken full possession of all the children in Regan's care. The children brutally dispatch the doctors in various gory and inventive ways. Hello, Tom Savini. <laughs> As Regan and Lamont are driven further into the bowels of the hospital, Walsh arrives, fighting his way through the carnage to join the pair, who are building a barricade of relics and holy books, drawing crucifixes on the walls while Lamont blesses holy water ready for a final showdown. Walsh tells the pair of his findings. Pazuzu is the king of the wind demons, so-called because he is not straight, not perfect, and believed to have been bent by the wind. Some theorise that Pazuzu was a dwarf or a cripple. He reveals that, in ancient Assyria, Pazuzu had been taken to a healer as a child, but the healer claimed the child had been touched by evil spirits and performed a barbaric form of primitive exorcism, which led to the boy bleeding to death. As he died, he swore revenge upon healers, those who promised so much, but delivered only misery. The Catholic archives only list Pazuzu as a demon, an absolute incarnation of evil. 
Before Lamont and Regan have much time to process that information, the possessed Peter, with Regan's other patients in tow, bursts through the stronghold, levitating, and surround the trio. Lamont makes his stand, recounting the Roman rites and dousing the possessed with holy water. However, he is overpowered. Pazuzu takes control of him, distorts and breaks his body before throwing him against a wall and snapping his neck. Walsh is in prayer, preparing himself for what he thinks is his final battle. But Regan steps forward. It is me you want, she says. She allows Pazuzu to take control of her body and goes into some kind of trance, the children still levitating. In a hellish dream world, Regan confronts Pazuzu, a shadowy, winged, demonic creature that occasionally reveals a glimpse of a pale white face drained of all blood. Walsh, witnessing the growing carnage around him and unaware of Regan's psychic confrontation with Pazuzu, begins dousing the room in petrol. Like the priest in Africa, he is convinced that the only way to end the demon's influence is to burn the building to the ground and eradicate the possessed. Pazuzu advances on Regan, expecting a fight, but instead she talks. She knows his past and has seen what he suffered in her flashbacks. She says she understands his anger and is sorry for what happened to him, but he must realise that inflicting the same on more defenceless children will only continue the cycle of hatred. Pazuzu stops, and for a brief moment, Regan sees him as a scared child. The carnage in the hospital begins to dissipate. The demon stares at her for a few seconds longer, then suddenly she is back in the hospital. Coming to her senses, she runs over and stops Walsh from lighting the fire as the room returns to normal. Regan feels closure as she is convinced that Pazuzu is now gone. However, we see that the Catholic Church has left the file open as they believe that Pazuzu will return and only the power of Christ can banish his evil. Find out who is right in The Exorcist <laughs> 4 because the third one's going to be about like um, cursed Halloween masks and stuff. Of great. course. Yeah, it's unlinked, but yeah. <clears throat> mm. Interesting. Cool. Okay. Over to the street sharks from hell. The Exorcist 2, Diary of the Demon. Our film opens with the climactic final events in The Exorcist as Father Karras takes on the demon Pazuzu and takes his own life to spare Reagan McNeil any further suffering. Audiences are then reminded of Father Dyer's charge to start an investigation into the events of the first film. Cut to a Seven-style montage title sequence of various research notes and papers being turned over and analysed. A title card sets the scene in the inverted commas present day. That being obviously 1999. Uh, and an older Father Dyer is still working on exorcism claims on behalf of the church. Rubbing his eyes and taking a swig of scotch, Dyer starts to convulse in his chair. His body jerks erratically as the priest swipes the bottle of alcohol off the table. Wide-eyed and panicked, he reaches for a box of matches, lights one, and hurls it at the alcohol-soaked bookshelves. The flames slowly rise as Dyer is almost pinned to his chair, and we fade to black. Another title card reads, Six months later. An emissary of the church arrives at the parish of former military chaplain Father Thomas Novak. He explains that among Dyer's possessions was an unfranked letter uh, addressed to Novak. The priest seems confused by this and explains he hadn't spoken with Dyer um, in many years after they had a falling out. The letter pleads with Novak to take on a case he could never gain closure on, the deaths of fathers Karras and Merrin. Everyone involved in the case has experienced ruination, with Reagan herself succumbing to substance abuse, but Dyer believes Novak's unique take on the world will imbue him with the suitable resolve. The envoy explains it's a shame as Dyer was a good man. Novak quietly states there are no good men. We are treated to a simple montage of Novak boarding a plane heading to Washington. Mid-flight, he turns the letter over in his hand, thinking back to the last time he saw Dyer. Flashback to several years prior, Novak has made the decision to leave the army and Dyer has paid him a visit to attempt to recruit him in tracking demonic activity, arguing that the presence of the devil on earth is evident in these episodes. 
to which Novak counters by saying the horrors he experienced during the Gulf War have shown him the, the extent to which man alone is capable of. The plane experiences some mild turbulence, which unnerves the police pretty somewhat, and triggers several horrific images from his time in Iraq, from oil fields set ablaze to men being brutally tortured. The screams transition from the visions and the shaky plane to the stillness of the next scene. Upon arrival in Dyer's home, Novak pours through the various documents and notes. Leafing through a journal authored by Father Merrin, we hear the deceased priest's voice narrating the contents. In it, he references the few surviving legible scraps of paper that Pazuzu scrawled on while possessing a young boy in North Africa in 1947. Fragments, he admits, should have been destroyed. We cut to a young Father Merrin talking with the aforementioned possessed boy. The boy explains that mankind has committed true horrors during the Second World War, and his time to return is almost nigh. Ignoring his words, Merrin begins the incantations. Pazuzu screeches that his true coming will undo the church itself. This shocks Merrin into a brief cessation, allowing the demon to demand to know what the priest did with his gospel. Merrin explains it was burnt, a lie. As punishment, Pazuzu tortures the boy, his back warping out of shape. Grinning, Pazuzu asks if the priest would like to see more. Merrin prays fervently, but tells the demon that any words from his forked tongue would never survive. Amused by this, Pazuzu forces the boy to bite down on his own tongue and rips it down the centre before spitting blood at the priest and laughing hysterically. Back in Dyer's home, Novak places the journal on a desk. Accompanying everything is a binder completed by Dyer. In it, he references surviving fragments of the demon's autobiographical documents, which Marin kept. This leads Novak to a sealed wooden box with a handful of rolled-up tatters wrapped in several rosaries. Novak cautiously opens the document and begins to read over the translation of the words written in a combination of Assyrian and Aramaic. The demon's voice begins to narrate, and we cut to the events described. Pazuzu's first entry is set in 325 AD in the ancient town of Ostia Antica, um, near, uh, near Rome. Maria is by the river watching, washing clothes when her son Caius approaches, covering, covered in scratch marks. Caius explains that his sister Lavilia attacked him. Distraught, Maria runs home and finds Lavilia on the ceiling, convulsing. The entire town is drawn to the screams and are equally horrified by what we're witnessing. Pazuzu's narration returns and he snidely recounts his actions were so heinous that it prompted the formation of the Council of Nicaea, an act he ultimately regretted as it led to the spread of Christianity throughout the Western world. For centuries he pondered how best to act next and finally acted upon suspicion and hatred, feeling the best way to pervert his rising religion was to punish the followers of its progenitor, Judaism. Speyer, Germany, 1096. Hugo Tiller meets with the local lord and works diligently to recruit men for the First Crusade to reclaim the Holy Lands. Tiller is met with reasonable enthusiasm and a commitment to enlist people to the cause. That evening, having spent the afternoon celebrating in a tavern, Hugo heads back to his lodgings, only to be confronted by several hideous demons walking the streets. Terrified, he draws his sword and begins hacking away at them, screaming for God's help the entire time. Suddenly, Hugo is set upon by other knights, clawing at him desperately. Hugo, demanding to be unhanded, instructs his colleagues to help, only to come to his senses and realise that he has massacred an entire Jewish ghetto. Pazuzu's narration returns as the demon cackles, stating that he didn't even need to possess Tiller, just to distort his perception. The individual possessed was, in fact, Lord Helberg, who used the event as a rallying cry for similar massacres of unarmed Jewish communities, while Hugo died in battle in Damascus, desperately trying to atone. Father Novak realises that Father Merrin believe the authenticity of the horrors committed by Pazuzu, but refuses to believe the connection can actually be real. He concludes that in order to confirm these claims, he will need to compare them with the Vatican archives. Novak takes the documents and travels to the Vatican, where he intends to meet with the archivist, Father Accardo. 
Upon arrival, Novak is met by the fiery Cardinal Brooks, who scolds Novak for giving weight to the heretical words of an imposter and furthering the works of a fanatic, being Merrin. A fellow Cardinal doesn't see the harm in allowing a, a Novak to continue his research, but under the guidance of a Cardo. Going through the ancient texts, both priests are shocked to learn that their own history largely links up with the scratchings allegedly authored by Pazuzu. The next legible entry is only partly re- recorded, but through the Vatican's archives they are able to piece together the remainder of the account. 1485, Spain. Using an Evil Dead-style POV shot, we see a montage of Pazuzu possessing several women who are then burned at the stake as heretics, furthering the cruelty of the Spanish Inquisition. Deeply unsettled by the findings, Father Ricardo states that the autobiographical documents written were more than just perverse ramblings, but a prophetic heralding against the arrogant, egocentric demon wanted the world to know about. Novak concludes that every documented occurrence of this demon ties into or directly affects major religious events, except those in 1947 and 1973. Ricardo wonders if they were merely trial runs for a bigger, more grotesque act. Novak remembers Merrin's recording of Pazuzu's threat about it undoing the church itself, which pushes Ricardo into an inconsolable, driven state, desperate to warn someone. Novak acts as the pragmatic voice of reason, asking, warn them about what? Both men agree they have no real proof or indication of what could be coming next. Novak goes to one step further and says that even if the demon is real, the human desire to see patterns is make it out to be an overwhelming source of great evil, which contradicts a large portion of church dogma. No one would support it. Somberly, Novak draws a parallel between the church hierarchy and that of the military who refused to heed his warnings about what was happening in Kuwait. Ocado insists he can persuade Cardinal Brooks to see reason, or at least take on board the links they have discovered. Novak accepts this and continues to look through documents. Feeling uncomfortable in the unsettling emptiness of the vault, Novak decides to accompany Ocado. Making his way through the empty corridors, Novak stops next to a large gilded door where he hears an immense clattering coming from the other side. Opening the door reveals Ocado's body lying on the floor and Cardinal Brooks stood a good 20 feet away, his cassock torn away to reveal various various lesions and marks on his body. The door slams shut behind Novak and Pazuzu's voice emanates from the tortured Cardinal. How have you enjoyed my words? Novak runs to to Brooks and tackles him to the floor. Wailing on the Cardinal, Novak begins to enact the rites of exorcism. Pazuzu cackles, taunting Novak for the uselessness of his physicality, highlighting that Brooks has been his meat puppet for the last few months, and he's only damaging the vessel. What is required is strength of faith, which he lacks. Taken aback by this revelation, Novak is viciously struck to the floor. Novak does his best to focus on the rites, but Pazuzu kicks his head, breaking his jaw. The demon-possessed Cardinal straightens up and explains that disposing of Novak and Ocado will be incredibly inconvenient, as maintaining composure surrounded by religious symbols and the appearance that Brooks isn't suffering from possession already requires an exceptional amount of his energy. Spitting blood, Novak asked why Dyer was targeted. Pazuzu said he needed a final trial run to see if he could successfully possess a priest before searching for a weak, corrupt higher official. From here, he will wait for the New Year's Mass and mutilate the Pope while denouncing the Church in an amazing spectacle. The only reason he chose Dyer was because it would upset the tormented soul of Karas. Novak becomes very fearful at this point. Picking up on this, Pazuzu chuckles and confirms, That's right, it was suicide. To this day, he burns in hell with his whore mother. With this, Brooks reaches for Novak's throat and starts to strangle him. Novak places a crucifix on Brooks's hands, which has an effect, but only loosens his grip slightly. <clears throat> Summoning enough energy to get to his feet, Novak forces the rosary down the possessed cardinal's throat. Pazuzu starts to choke, his neck spewing steam like a burst pipe. Barely able to stand, Novak mumbles the incantations and watches Pazuzu writhe in agony. As the exorcism continues, the chaplain is afflicted by flashes of his time in Iraq, giving last rites to dying soldiers blown apart by landmines and watching over the beatings of captured enemies. 
Through the suffering, Pazuzu gargles a laugh, then mocks the priests, explaining that there are no good men. That's why possession is so easy. No matter what is achieved here today, the demon will recover and has not been defeated. Hobbling toward the demon, Novak grabs him by the collar and drags him to the adjoining ensuite. Plunging the cardinal face first into the toilet, he blesses the water and flushes. An intense eruption of steam rises from the bowl, and the cardinal keels back, revealing a hideously corroded face. Flailing momentarily, he finally falls to the floor and remains still. Novak drags himself across the floor and finishes whispering the exorcism rites. Cutting to the College of Cardinals, discussing various matters, the doors swing open, and a dishevelled, bleeding Novak hobbles in. Those present rush to help the priest. Through his busted, swollen jaw, Novak starts to explain what has happened, which one of the cardinals relays to the room in Italian. Several cardinals bless themselves, one passes out. The final words whispered leave the interpreting cardinal confused, and he asks Novak to repeat it. The audience clearly hear the priest say, Will you hear my confession? The cardinal nods and commends the priest for his work, calling him a good man. With this, Novak weeps. The camera pulls away as a sea of red robes surround the battle-weary priest, leaving an air of ambiguity and uncertainty of the demon's ultimate fate. Because we went mental! We went big! We always go small and contained. We went overboard. to kill the Pope. (laughs) Yep. 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 Catholics hate that. (laughs) Catholics gonna hate this one. It was very interesting because I like that, technically, so I'm Catholic and Stuart's a psychiatrist. And sorry, my apologies, psychologist. I was. I can't. I can't give you drugs. I've told you that before. (laughs) But we're street sharks (laughs) (laughs) from hell. My apologies. Yeah. So the idea is that you're in the original film. It does have a lot of is this faith? Is it Mm. science? What is going on here? And you've gone very much down the psychological road, and we go down to the religion road. So it's kind of nice. This two really different films. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. There you go. So they were both pretty mental in different ways. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's a really difficult one to do a sequel to. Mm. Yeah, I think. There should not because be a sequel. There shouldn't. Yeah. There should be yeah. five or however many it may yeah. So you have to you have to take it somewhere different, but you can't I get we kind of looked at this from the alien aliens perspective, mm. where it is enough elements but it is completely its own mm-hmm. entity. It, it exists on mm. its own. And I think we tried to do something that was that and it seems like you guys did exactly the same thing. John Borman did too, but it didn't work. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. Street Sharks, would you like to ask questions to your mother, Knit Socks in Hell? Yeah, so we were, we were looking into this, uh, what we're doing. We initially did go 1977, 78, and then initially it was like, no, no, this needs to be a long period of time, much like you guys are the same mm. thing, you can't do it too soon. Um, also, then there becomes one very simple uh, question Do you make it about Reagan's story, or do you make it about the demon's story? Yeah, or we, do you do the thing and just try and do the same thing again with different people? The issue that we had going down the Reagan route, and this is, I guess... Part of the question as well. Yeah, this is kind of... Yeah, the question is why, because we, in our own analysis, kind of felt that it potentially... And I think you've done a reasonably good job of pushing avoiding this, but we felt that the returning to Reagan starts to make it feel like, you know, the... Star Wars saga films that it's oh it's about the Skywalkers again it's all about the special people and they're the only people that exist within this universe of demonic possession um, and we felt that you know it, our, our argument I guess mm. is that it's more scary if it could happen to anyone so riddle me this why did you go that down the Reagan route because Pazuzu I don't think of the first one as really a character okay I would also say the same thing with Regan I think that really it's about the two priests yeah. and that her possession is, you know, it's a great performance from Linda Blair, but it's not really about her as a character. No, she's the character. It is. Itself. And that's precisely why we decided we wanted it to be about her. and We wanted it to be about Pazuzu. 
because we had questions. Of, well, firstly, Pazuzu is a kind of unknown entity, and we, mm. we debated that. We were like, should this character have backstory? Should yeah. we mm. should we even go back there, or is this character more of a threat if it is just an unknown? And I did a bit of research actually into. Oh, we can tell from the description. Yeah, and he's now possessed. So yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's so, well. <laughs> I thought there the was the Syrian history backstory stuff, and yeah. yeah. And I thought there was something to to go on there. I think when you read it, and when I read the thing that talked about Pazuzu actually being a cripple, and I thought, as he's described in the various texts and things, mm. and I thought, well, that's that's interesting. Because that's not something that we sort of think about. And you think about that from a, an historical perspective. That is something that would be thought of oh, it's in not a way, a historically, mm. that we do not think of it now. And what? So what creates a demon in mm. that sense? So, so in a, because this is interesting, because obviously you say about um, they're not having a backstory, they're not having really a focus, it's about the priest, which, yeah. if you think about the whole arc of the story, it really is the priest's yeah. journey. Yeah. And, and they've killed them both. <laughs> both yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, why the film should not have a sequel. Yeah, well, we, did, yeah, we all completely agree with that entirely. Um, but I think we had the discussion about the nature of the demon as well, because we did the thing about, do we go back to Babylon? Because obviously there are lots of flashbacks through this thing's backstory. Yes. But we, thought we don't go to Babylon because we then start saying, how's the hierarchy? How does this work? When do they go back? And we start thinking about... Because the problem is, if you present an idea and it's just an entity which you've sort of done, that's fine. Because then you, um, it's just it's, it's the Hitchcock, you know, it's, it's the force that's coming for you. All the matters is terrifying because it's a, an un, unquantifiable thing. But then if you give it a solid backstory in history, and it's like, oh, it's this Assyrian god. It's like, well, if it's a god, and I know we, we sort of link it to other things as well. But if you if you quantify what it is, especially if considering your nature film being very scientific, then it becomes Weird from a Catholic involvement point of view, that makes sense. Because obviously, the, you, if it cross, crosses, I don't have phrases, so it's crossing faiths and all sorts of things, and it becomes this very much an idea. I can get why it was done that way in 1989. I can understand John Carpenter doing that, especially with his um, uh, Lovecraftian kind of stuff. I can see where you're going with that. But I think from our point of view, it was the case of if you're going with the demon again, there has to be a reason it's coming back to these people. And as Tom said, it's just the specials. It's just. Like going for Kokumo, the, you know the boy. And again, when you saw it, you have sort of salvaged the bits that are referenced. Uh, well, the bits in the second film that are referenced in the first film, anyway. So I get that; that makes sense. Um, but I didn't, from our point of view, we, we sort of had the similar thing, but we didn't uh, specifically name him. Um, but it was more about the priests in our one than it was and a pre- the priests and the demon relationship. The people being possessed isn't important because, as, as as Tom said, it's the scary thing of it could be anybody. Whereas as you say, the nature of the good and evil and reading and closure and stuff, I think there's... It's an interesting angle, but I think following up a film that's fundamentally a horror, you've made it a psychological thriller, which is good, but very different. Oh, we're getting quite visceral near the end when things go yeah, crazy. Yeah, I and, think... And we Savini it up a lot. Yeah. Savini's a verb now. I think we... Yeah, we tried <laughs> to... We just tried to make it a very different kind of horror film, I think. Mm. Yeah. That was... And we, we deliberately moved it toward an era and thought, what really worked at this point in time? Because the 80s is such an interesting period for horror compared to oh, the 70s. Yeah. Because, and we wanted to do the 80s Exorcist. That okay. was kind of our... Um, Considering that Exorcist 3 is 1990, it feels like yeah. a 90s sort of yeah, go yeah. back to the book. Yeah. I like that none of us really went back to the books. 
because there's Legion as well, the sequel, and it's like we all sort of abandoned that. Um, Tom, do you want to I I really liked I liked her I liked the science versus God angle, and um, I thought that was that was nice. I liked the uh, I liked kind of her arc. I think that's something you guys do very well as character arcs. Stuart, so that's nice. She did her whole kind of thing. Um, I felt that the it it potentially felt in the hospital a time when there was reference to the exoplasm. It felt maybe a little was veering, veering, uh, veering rather than veering, whatever the fuck that is, <laughs> uh, veering into kind of Ghostbusters territory. Which I didn't know whether that was kind of a deliberate thing, but um, and I'm not sure kind of how I feel about that. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Because I love Ghostbusters, but I'm not sure whether that's compatible mm. with Come run past in the corridor in the background. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, that's a valid point. Actually, that does worry me with the ectoplasm. Because I might feel a bit Ghostbusters. Yeah, because it also soup. I think we just put ecto- we sort of. You name it. It wasn't just that. It was yeah. also the kind of running. I don't know the running around in in, in the place becoming kind of possessed, and um, also becoming a, a climax that's basically a conversation, which I understand the reasoning for, and I appreciate from a storytelling point of view. But considering the nature of what it's following, I think in the same way that John Borman said, "What I created wasn't what the audience wanted. They wanted gore." They wanted, and I say got a lot of it, but the clothes well, feels. That, that, so go on. The thing that we talked about there was to have this intercut with the with Walsh, mm. who is basically preparing to burn the place to the ground. Yeah, and I think she's kind of flailing and is in full on possessed mm. rapture. I think there's a, there's a, a conversation at the centre of it, but in terms of flashbacks and things. No, I think it was the, sorry, I meant the psychic link and seeing the physical form of Pazuzu then becoming a little boy sort of thing. I yeah. get it. I think. Um, if I saw it, and it, it really does come down to execution, and I, uh, as much as I love the shit out of John Carpenter, I can't see that working from Carpenter. I can't see him conveying that in a way that I would go, yes, I'd probably go, oh, fuck off. I'd see it more as like <laughs> Big Trouble in Little Chinatown. So, little, little sorry. And, and I, I get where it would be going, that the, 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 on the page, I get it, but actualization I think it would come off as a that bit hanging. Yeah, I do wonder you do need a fight at the end. Well, that's just the thing that I was going to say as well with the ending. The, the thing that strikes me about The Exorcist, the original one, and the success of it is obviously the the context around it being a bit like when Alien came out and you know them having to edit out the chestburster scene and mm-hmm. the, the the it was so scary that it was banned and it was so terrifying and it was almost you know people were fearful that you know they were going to get possessed or that it was some kind of that kind of demonic stuff having reactions of the cinema and everything yeah convulsing. yeah yeah and convulsing all the rest of it like what I fear <laughs> is by uh, by humanizing and giving the demon a character arc and actually by Okay, humanizing, but giving him a motivation, you're almost defanging his sense of pure evil and terrifyingness. That the, which the I get the because you said about the theme being there's no pure good, there's no pure evil. evil. But yeah. the whole point of Exorcist One is, and you go back to watch the film, and you're supposed to say this is the same character. This is not a pure evil character. I yeah. don't yeah. get and that's that's, that's, my kind of, like that's my fear with it is that it, it really does kind of remove that I sense of just utter horror from but we liked I think this was we wanted to do something that was almost a bit of a subversion on the first one okay and I think something that was almost a, a commentary on the first one mm-hmm. and I think that that was a, a self-conscious thing that we didn't want him to be pure evil and we wanted this to be almost looking at the first movie that we had seen through the perspective of Marin, which, and through, I forgot the name of the other priest. Carol. Yeah, which we kind of do. We kind of see that movie from their <clears throat> angle. Yeah. And I like the idea that they have informed our perception of this, and that actually 
our film offers a different perception because this is also Regan's take. This yes, I her... agree with you, but the problem is, and I don't take this the wrong way. That's kind of what John Borman did, and I don't mean that in the because uh, yeah, uh, 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 Linda yeah. Blair did say about the five drafts of the script and what, it, what started off as a really good script ended up being a piece of shit because it is about like I mean really if you take the crux of the story about Doctor you know Ratchet uh, Louise Fletcher does and the nature of the science and and the actual healing aspect and the nature of them being healers. I think that's quite an interesting angle. It just was executed poorly. I think yours is an interesting angle. I just don't know if it would work as a follow-up. Even like even so many years later, like a his audience later. expectations. Well, that's what worries me is that the I think that they would expect horror, horror. But yeah. I think they're getting horror. It's just different horror. And I think that if you move it on far enough, I think expectations change. And I think I see the like alien aliens mindset yeah. still coming into the back there. I, I see. I see again. I, I understand the motivation. I just don't think I. By the execution with the people involved, like Dorf, for example, interesting choice. I, what was the motivation for Because I don't, as much as I like Dorf in certain roles, he's not exactly, he doesn't channel a lot. No offense, Dorf. <laughs> we still love him. We still love him. We still, we'd still love to have you do yeah. something. With Dude, Blade, come on, you're amazing. But Karen, yeah, I. That's a good question, really. I, I like the physicality of him. I wanted yeah. somebody who didn't look like your standard priest. Yeah, it's a Jesse Custer kind of thing. I yeah. think I, I get the reasoning. I just think it's again, it's the it's the eighties mindset. Like, get me some. It's it's George Clooney Batman. It's it's not your George Clooney Batman. The real life George Clooney, George, <laughs> the horrible one. Yeah, the one that was like someone's just this like going to get even face. trickier as we go on and on and on. Isn't yeah, referencing like, the, the, the what out, <laughs> out, out, out not yeah, the real yeah, 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 it feels like just cast for the sake of the visual as opposed to anything actually bringing the script. I also have an issue with the no. I understand the demon's motivation. I get the whole thing to say about the. The nature and the origin of the again, it's it's humanizing the demon. It makes it kind of weird. Um, um, I think I've probably covered everything I need yeah, to cover. Yeah. Uh, um, just oh yeah, no, it's like Pazuzu's power changes midway through. Quite interestingly. So again, you've got in the first film possessing one girl. Yeah, and that's fine. In this film, it was the bit where he possesses an entire hospital full of children. Yeah, that's a and then also jumps into a, one of the. Is yeah. it Lamont who jumps into as well? I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a lot of people. People. And and then Reagan's like, no, you want me, and, and that sort of thing. And I get that, but it's the question of you've made... It's it's almost OP in a way. You've made so hyper-powered, overpowered. It's like, well, why doesn't he just... What, why doesn't he win? Why doesn't he possess everyone in the world at once? Or well, he's not that, that just, I know, he's not that just, just even, like, everyone in the room. Everyone in the... Solves the yeah. Because it's the Reagan problem, job done. Kills them all. It's what's the motivation I don't get. But his motivation... Is that there's a vengeance element to it. There is his treatment. He specifically targets the healers. It's the healer. Yeah, I get that. The... It's it's the healers he chooses to target that I find is odd. I mean, I don't imagine that the ones that are, he's targeting are people that are making cutting edge work. And again, it's, it's Tom's thing. I, I must admit, it's a fundamental issue. Again, why we also strayed away from the Reagan story again is what makes her so special. And even like Kokomo. Kokomo? Yeah. what makes him so special I know it's the whole it's because they have a history but it's a weird link I don't know I felt that I felt that we did enough in terms of movie logic for that to oh it's enough I don't think carry. it's I don't think it works. Uh... <laughs> I think it's enough to Man, say. Man, Matt, you're really you're going deep in this. Uh, we're go- this this oh, is yeah, like an hour long in the yeah, shark. Yeah. We were like, we're gonna go in hard. <laughs> yes, sorry, yes. So I'm I think saying. we're good for questions at this point. Yeah. No further questions. Yes, we are. No further questions, all right. 
throw over the other time for you to ask questions to the I did like it Mm -hmm. I do think I like but don't love David Fincher so for me there is the fact there there are some Fincher films I really like but yeah there were some the the Fincherness of it I thought was was interesting and something that didn't quite fully click for me but that's a personal taste Mm -hmm. in terms of my thoughts and feelings about director Um, the episodic thing Mm. Is is the thing for me because in terms of how the movie is weighted, and I appreciate that this is just a synopsis. No, go ahead, that's right. My problem with it was that I felt that we had these vignettes, mm. and that, and as you said, they were uncovering these things, but I didn't really get how much these individual vignettes added to their knowledge because it felt to me like we get a sense that this guy is bad and he's been mucking through history and, mm. you know, he, you know, may well even have, you know, killed the Kennedys when after <laughs> sure, sure. and whatever else. Um, oh man, run the bean. Yes, you're Magneto-ing but, him at this point. <laughs> but then we get to however far into the movie and he's just like, oh yeah, by the way, I'm going to murk the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, oh, okay, so that's his game. Yeah, right, yeah. we should we should stop him from doing that because that would fucking suck. Well, for us, um, it was the idea. I mean, obviously, it is like a three-hour spectacle. It's meant to be a really big Fincher. It's like Zodiac, kind of yeah. thing. Zodiac is kind of a good. Yeah, it's good an uncovered thing, and it, the whole thing is meant to add credence. And it's not it's not trying to almost further uh, the story, motivation, or anything like that at all. It's more trying to, if anything, it's trying to convince Novak. Because he just does not believe in demons. He thinks he genuinely, after the war, he thinks basically we didn't want to use the phrase hell on earth, but we, yes. were, we the way that we anticipate all of the the kind of the flashback bits being is very much kind of in that kind of vein of like jarhead, yes. yeah, that just utter which degradation of really humanity. Tune to and think really connect with, yeah. yeah, in a way that while people would watch the Exorcist and go, oh, I know girls. <laughs> Allow me to tell you the name. There is Susan. There is Martha. <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, the Denver Zilf was a big thing, and it was still kind of sort of going on at the time in It wouldn't be in the sort of Gulf War Two something. This is just before. Um, much in the way Starship Troopers is oddly prophetic yeah. in a way that you know things like. Uh, so yeah, the implication that. The two year two thousand in nineteen ninety nine, there were so many films obsessed with the year two thousand, like the biggest major thing. It's like much of the way twenty twelve regurgitated yeah, that mindset, and we were praying on it. I guess why we released it in ninety was thing like couple of ninety six initially, and we then said, oh no, nineteen ninety nine, millennium, right. and because we were, we were originally linking it into like the birth of the Spanish Inquisition, all kinds of different things, and this made it much simpler because audiences at that time were genuinely freaked out. Y2K, yo. Yeah. Mm. Uh, There's like end of day, stigmata, tons of random things that came out at the time that just said, year 2000, weird shit's going to happen. It's it's furthering his ability to connect to the belief of it all. Saying, oh, and yeah, also I, gives I see it, these horrible things, it, but they're just cinematically. It also gives it a lot of scope and it mm. gives it that kind of... Think of the um, You give... This is the thing, is that you end up with lots of short stories that on their own mm. I think are quite interesting. I think one of the problems with it that I can see is mm-hmm. your priest, mm-hmm. your, um, no, your Gulf War mm-hmm. chap, I've forgotten his, his Novak. name. Father uh, Novak. Yeah. yeah. Problem is that Father Novak may be trying to come to terms with this mm-hmm. and to try and decide whether he believes this, whether it is mm-hmm. real or not. Mm-hmm. The impression that I got, especially from these 
these vignettes and from these stories and from the fact that you are going to tell it visually mm-hmm. means that we as the audience are pretty much sure that it is from the get-go. I would counter almost immediately by saying, you guys did kind of the same thing by saying Reagan says, oh, it's not real. It's like, we know it's real because we watched the first, watched film. The first mm. film. So, And also, arguably, this is just... It's his journey, not I mean, you can also play the usual suspects game of, well, we have flashbacks in that and none of those are real. Um, and and mm. this, this is simply him He's reading, reading a book and seeing, reading a book and seeing it in his mind. My so, point, a lot of, so the stories you present in the audience may not even have happened. Well, they do happen. They confirm. Is it the idea? Of, but it's the idea of like well, what, what is there is the potential. And again, unreliable narrator yeah. is Fincher, nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, but I guess <laughs> I guess my point there was not so much that, mm. uh, not so much whether that would. Oh, you mean from not, an audience? But point whether it would be frustrating for an audience, whether the audience would be able to buy it if they saw these things happening, mm. and it felt fairly explicit to them that it did because the. I'd say that's the. Okay, let's pull Godfather 2 for an example. We all know how it ends. We all know he ends up being Godvito or anything like that. It's almost like, oh yeah, revisiting bits. We all know the families that he's sort of bonding with become his mortal enemies at the end. It's, again, the journey of the thing. Yes, okay, they are vignettes. Yes, okay, they are... Well, again, we, we briefly describe them, but they are quite in-depth in, in, the, in the execution of the film, as it, as it were. Um, but I think they will add visual weight and horror element because the actual story of a priest who flies to the Vatican and uncovers a thing and basically just goes through the higher up and stuff like that isn't arguably a horror film but what he uncovers at the end of the road is it's the stuff he learns in between the idea that it gives a history to this thing because if we talk about like Father Merrin in the first film who uncovers that statue in Iraq and it's always the arrogance of contemporary audiences thinking well it must have happened ten weeks ago because I don't remember the past and that, that idea that if this thing's around for thousands of years or whatever what's its motivation what's it doing it's always like trying to arrogantly try to pervert humankind and hopefully it also kind of plays into that kind of mystery box also kind of um pseudo history that i think i mean i often enjoy sometimes um sort of wonder why i do but it's that thing of you know national treasure the da vinci code mm-hmm. angels and demons those kind of things where it's pseudo history but there's enough and real, audiences love that crap. yeah real there's, there's enough real footing in history to be like oh maybe Oh, well, that is it. Case, Ooh, case yeah. in point, the Speer thing in, in 1096 actually happened. Well, not the demon possession thing, but they did. They massacred a load of Jewish people to, to almost motivate going to, to the Crusades and stuff. Um, so again, we, we sort of, in typical 90s fashion, you take an element of history and make it something that's more heightened for the purpose. Yeah, I, I think the problem is very much that trying to convince Novak isn't enough thread between all these stories for an audience. You've actually got very little actual narrative in it. Um, it's, it's kind of this basically three-hour alt-reality Catholic history lessons with mm-hmm. some minor bickering, and then two priests have a fight at the end. It just did not work for me. That's fine. Just uh, but I think, I think if you go back to the original... Especially for three hours, yeah. I think you will have great... But if you go back to the original... Can I use a Nicolas Cage analogy? I always want to do this. Uh, national treasure there. So, like, national treasure is, let's go to all these random places and do this stuff, mm-hmm. but you've got that thread which keeps you going all the way through, and it's pretty exciting. Jonathan's impressive. It's not much really happens in that no. film. Other yeah, than yeah, that's good. And, you know, it's really exciting to watch. Because you've gone a bit more, unfortunately, National Treasure 2, where it just feels like here's a load of stuff happening, and then how did that go? Well, I don't know, we're at the end now. Again, I <laughs> don't know. I think it's the original Exorcist is just effectively a girl in a bedroom and two priests turn up. Mm. That's kind of it. So yeah. as far as narrative well, is This is why it's so difficult, I think. Yeah, to... we sort of 
in a way you're trying to honour and heighten, but without actually perverting yeah. what the spirit of the original was. But I, I, I just think, don't think the vignettes are strongly enough connected, especially not I guess for the demon is very the little the demon. Yeah, the demon is the threat. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're reminding you of these things. Yeah, I think perhaps part of the problem here again mm. is because the demon is the thread and the demon is the thing that links it, mm. because your demon is his motivation is his desire for malevolence and his hatred of religion. And that's it. So he's rich. That's fine. For, but, because we don't but quantify, but no, we don't quantify what it is. We don't quantify... We mm-hmm. in, uh, much in the same but way that you guys for, have gauged what the thing is. And it's again, you've humanised him and you've made him a very real being. Whereas ours is literally the personification of evil. It's just like, how can I get back... It's, if you want to take the Scooby-Doo mindset, it's the, how do I get away with it now? No, no Scooby-Doo. You need the, the constant adversarial... Battered away. I'll get you next time, gadget. There you go. Inspector Gadget. That's what I want to get. It's claw. Uh, it's claw. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's where I'd say we're going with it and trying to really hammer home to the audience. This isn't something that can be. And in and in, in the ambiguity in the film is the same thing. It's like Novak sacrifices what he thinks is everything, and he and there's this horrible, visceral, awful ending. And even then, he doesn't feel like he's won. Much like when he came home from from war, you don't feel like you've won. And and it's constantly going. It may be like I'm not saying we should. This definitely would not have a sequel. But the idea yeah. being that if you talk about possession, I think yours has a very much a finality to it. Like we solve the problem of ancient evil, and I know it's not that. No, they didn't. And that's a re- but that's yeah. a really Fincher thing. You look at the you look at the end of Fight Club. You look at the end of Gone Girl. Arguably, the end of the Social Network. All of them are pyrrhic victories. They are all hmm. um, that you know. The end of Fight Club is. We've completely decimated the capitalist system, and what's going to happen now? You met me at a very strange time in life. Gone Girl is, oh shit, they're in an even more fucked up relationship. Um, Mm. What have we learned? Not very much, but it's been a really disturbing journey that's made me question everything about myself and the relationship. Gone Girl's a great example, because even though it's a book that he hasn't obviously, I'm saying Fincher would write these things, but again, actual structure speaking, it's a a police case, then it's not a police case. And Seven, I mean, Seven, of course, you know. It ends up that actually all of the characters are destroyed, and it, you know, as as people, their lives are ruined, yeah. and that is why it stays with you as a as a horror or as a horrific mm-hmm. yeah. film. It's because these characters, the, 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 I guess, that's what I respond to in feature films. Mm-hmm. That they 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 feel very because each each what adds to the story, these little vignettes, each vignette ruins lives. It's not just the possession; it's the fact that none of these people recover from it. I mean, the idea that you know the ancient Roman family will be social pariahs. The idea that um, uh, Hugo the knight goes off and literally just tries to atone and ends up, you know, killing himself. The women who were in the expansion get burned up. The kid, Kokomo, and obviously Merrin eventually dies. That's, you know, that's the link to it. That links into the exorcist. It's the idea that there is no winning, basically. For Again, sort of the energy reason. level of your film for an audience is going to be an odd one. Because it starts, you know, sort of here and it's like all vignette was interesting no it starts with the end but of the exorcist film where it's all really intense and there's like the guy yeah, not the audience, you just come in and the film starts you haven't had time to actually build that up because um, it's coming in from the last one yeah. and then they're kind of oh how, how does that link to this one that's, that's see I think yours has too then much build and no actual exorcism yeah, which you, you could be absolutely, absolutely uh, valid on that mm. thing but you also then you have the big fight at the end. It's like, oh well, nobody's really won, and it's just and I'm okay with that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that I'm not trying to sell to you. Anyway. I'm trying to sell to you, but yeah. and you at home. But that's I get because the thing is, I think we've written so really disparate sort of scripts that we're mm. never going to convince each other that obviously no. no I think this yeah. has probably been the one thus far that we've been the most disparate on. I think. Yeah. 
but that's because we had nothing to really work no, with. No, we've literally yeah. just gone thing, nuts yeah. with. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Thankfully, you've both gone very, very far from the original. Oh god, yeah. too. Yeah. So I think we can both agree that either of these would probably be an improvement. I'm going to quite easily. Yeah. I think it couldn't. It couldn't not be an improvement. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I should, I should say that I'd watch. I'd watch the David Fincher directing a paint dry. So. Well, it's time to make a decision, I suppose, and I think this is by far the hardest one for me because, God, the original is so bad, <laughs> and I would pick either of the, these two over the the original. At the moment, currently known, <laughs> your mother knit socks and hell are 2-1 up, and I'm going to have to even the score, I think. It's a three-hour film with almost no narrative. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, we do not know when you I, win. Oh. I, I'm not so keen on it being three hours long. I think that's a bit much. But I like I actually cut it to two. And I'm yes, on board. exactly. Yes, that's what that was. Right, we can do that. Now we can. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we can. <laughs> it's gonna be nine hours. Yeah, we can, we can. Terrence Malick is yeah. now brought on board. Yeah. Oh god. Um, Sorry, but yeah, I, I like the. Um, I actually kind of disagree with you, Stuart, in that I like the hopelessness that there is no conquering this evil. Oh no, kind I didn't dislike that, but it's just when that's added to the, you know, you've not got much there for the audience. I think to follow yeah. on that. That's not much. Depends on the first one. The first one ends in a well, yeah, but you've got down a, a note. And... Oh no, I've got no problem with that. So I think it's when it's added to the fact that there's um, not really a story for the audience to follow. Yeah, it's all to do with energy levels. Yeah, but then yeah. combining that with the epic thing, I think, also mm. has an effect. Right? I think it's an basically issue. we should merge these two scripts. Um, by just using alternate words. <laughs> <laughs> it's still better. It's a program that does that that just merges two word documents and just every yeah. other word is just... Mail merge it is. That'll be uh, the next episode. to just... the mail merge. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I'm going to have to go yes. Street Sharks from Hell. I really like the idea of what, what Fincher could do. I know you're a huge Fincher nerd, Tom. huge Fincher and, nerd. And 99 Fincher, um, which sounds like... 99 red, red balloons. balloons. <laughs> <laughs> 99. I mean, they would be dyed with the blood the of The blood of the innocent. Yeah, <laughs> the, how they're red. Um, but, but, um, Neil Patrick Harris. Yeah, yeah the, that's the closing song is the, the swarm of cardinals closing. I'm okay with that. I like the um, how ridiculously planned to kill the popes thing. Yeah. It, it, you kind of hinted at it with uh, Angels and Demons and that kind of... Yeah, it's got that like kind of... Screenplay by Dan Brown. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't like Dan Brown, but I, I like the, the ridiculous kind of battle through the Vatican kind of thing that you guys did. What I really, really liked about yours, and I think this was probably your, mostly your influence, Stuart, was the, the atheist psychologist yeah. kind of battle of religion and faith and stuff. That and was my favourite bit of the yeah, I really You, you mentioned the kind of getting into the history of things and the king the, the king of the wind demons and that sort of thing and doing the research and I like weird things that actually like you don't realise it's based on a real thing that is a, is a I'm not saying kings of demons are real things in real life but that is a reference to a it's thing a that, isn't, yeah, isn't yeah, he audience isn't he <laughs> <laughs> so that wraps up episode 4 you're at even Stevens at the moment um, I didn't do that intentionally because I thought this this episode was particularly difficult and I just Almost Harvey dented it and flipped a coin, kind of thing. Um, I'm down from our fucking victory. God damn it. No, no, no. Um, For episode five, we're going to be tackling something a lot more modern. Mm. Um, By far the most modern sequel. And is it the largest distance between sequels, I think, that we've Uh, done? Of what we actually. Yeah, in my Yeah, Yeah. 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 a couple of years later. Independence Day Resurgence is bloody awful. 
yeah, by all accounts, and we're going to try and fix it. So, Stuart, how can people follow you on the interwebs? Just Google one word. Ashens, like Madonna. <laughs> Did you think of that when, when, when you took up the mantle of Ashens? You're like, I want to nope. be like Prince or Madonna. Want one word. My SEO is sorted for the rest of my life. I'm going to be honest, I completely zoned out when you were talking because I was trying to remember <laughs> where the quote, one word like Madonna, came from. And it was really annoying me. But I found it. Um, and I've just forgotten it again. So I'm going to talk round it for a very short period of time. But now I've remembered it again. It's from Inspector Gadget. Oh, there you go. Everett as Claw. Oh. So that must have come from earlier there you when go. you said. Yeah, there you yeah. go. I'd also like to point out that if you uh, Google Madonna, the first thing that comes up is a picture of Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> Wearing Madonna's Brazilian from the don't cry from yeah. Argentina. I, I am worshipped in some Catholic countries, but we won't get into that. <laughs> Alec, how about you? Alec underscore Plowman. That's P-L-O-W-M-A-N. That's me on Twitter. My regularly updated and full of informative <laughs> content website. From 2013. Yeah, is uh, com. So if you want to know my thoughts on MySpace on New Coke. <laughs> uh, the future of Laserdisc is a viable format. <laughs> HD VHS all the way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Then, um, yeah, go, go there. Go there to me. <laughs> so I'm at a production company and we make films and that's generally what I get up to on the social media and the internet so uh, all of the social medias Instagram Twitter and Facebook you can find us on at made by forward and if you want to then go and uh, look at some of the films that we have made uh, you can go on our website which is weareforward.uk Matthew Stockton, how about you? For my film reviews, go to theredrighthand.co.uk for filmmaking stuff, cheesemint.com. I realise I don't usually promote my Twitter handle, so I will. Take Twitter or a Ouija board and at S-T-O-G-H-Z, you'll find me and my ridiculous bullshit. Excellent. Speaking of ridiculous bullshit, you can follow us on Twitter. We're at Sequelizers. Uh, Sequelizers at gmail.com if you want to question my judgement, if you want to pitch a better idea than these guys can come up with or suggest, have some, anything, suggest some sequels for suggest us some to, sequels uh, to, us yeah, to talk to about fix. exactly yeah yeah we're um, a crack team and we will fix <laughs> we'll fix anything you throw a crack or a crap team I'm not entirely sure but one of the two Jack to choose every week pretty much um, me personally I'm at JLW Chambers I host a bunch of other podcasts usually about comics so you can follow me on there follow me on Twitter and uh, keep up to date with all of that and yeah join us for Independence Day ID42, I guess, is what we want to call it. That's kind of a sport title thing, but... It's 42 research. Exactly. (laughs) In episode 5. Bye. 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 Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.